Well, it's so good to be with you again this evening. Um, that was not me. I didn't do that. Is it muted, Brian? I'm sure that wasn't me. Was that you? I don't think so. Are we good? Okay. Is it okay? I think we're okay. We'll see. If you see flames, run for the door. And I will not be helping you. So, uh, um, hey, a couple real quick things. Um, on the back of your bulletin, there are um, two classes that are starting up. Uh, George McKamey is teaching a class called Trailhead. Let me say, if, if you're at a place in your faith, or maybe even better, if you know someone who's kind of starting out in their faith and would really like to know... Um, in fact, I'll just talk about the name of the class. It's called Trailhead. When you go hiking, the first thing you encounter is the trailhead. And the trailhead tells you, what do you need for this hike? What do you need to have with you? How much water do you need to have? Where do you need to go and not go? That's the point of trailhead, is if you're saying, what does it mean to have movement in my relationship with Jesus? What are the tools I need? How do I do that? How does the Bible function, prayer, and all these sorts of things that might be overwhelming? Trailhead is a great place for you to kind of get oriented. So that's this Sunday. And then also beyond first steps, broadening the fundamental biblical beliefs. Um, my friend Roger Hageman, many of you know Roger, he'll, he'll be teaching that class. So if you come on a Sunday morning, um, stay for an extra hour and go to a class, get in fellowship and connection with other people. And then lastly, I, I hope some of you have... Um, begun the altar in the valley experience um, i just started that this week I'm, I'm a little behind i'm only two days in but it's such a great experience i just pop my earbuds in and i walk around the church building for about 15 minutes and listen it's just it's really really orienting for my soul so anyway i hope i hope that you'll take advantage of that maybe um make use of that this is week two in our eight-week series going through the book of revelation the last book in the bible and pastor john mel our windsor campus pastor has been so kind because uh, he's put a lot of study into this to come over and walk us through these uh, chapters and this uh, this book so please welcome pastor john mel as he comes this evening thanks john Pastor Brent Cunningham in shorts, willing somewhere just a little longer here. I like your attitude, Brent. Very positive. All right, this week and next, Jesus and his church. This week, if you were with us last week or you caught it on video last week, this week is going to be a lot less mind-bending and mercifully shorter. So let's all just kind of take a deep breath. Oh, that feels good. Okay, so first, tonight, we're going to be starting off uh, with the last 12 verses of chapter 1. Jesus is the head. He's the main character of Revelation. And next week, we're going to look at, so what is the uh, responsibility and the accountability of the church that he is writing this letter to? At this point, we're still in a sort of introduction or beginning phase in Revelation. And I'm really laboring the point here because I really want to make sure that the tone and the pace and the emotions and the setting of Revelation is caught before we dive in. I was talking to a few guys before this. Are, are you getting, going to get into the, the nitty gritty of Revelation? And in this study, not yet. We're going to take it slow at first to make sure the tone and what the author intends us to get that we catch. Can we all agree, if you miss that part, 
and you just go to the middle, you're going to miss it or misunderstand it. Can we all agree if I fast forward through the first 30 minutes of a complex movie, I might have missed something that was kind of important. So here we go. At this point in his life, old man John that wrote this letter would have not only immersed himself in Old Testament stories and promises, the basis by which we are to see revelation through Old Testament eyes, but he would have also had decades of his own to pour over memories and successes and obstacles of a life of ministry and an unprecedented time in history where, where the Bible, the New Testament, as we knew it, not as he would have known it, is uniquely being formed. Writings of Paul and Peter that he would have had to draw from. And that's when John became possessed. Okay, I know we don't like that word or that image because immediately it kind of draws up some, some movie scenes or some horror scenes. But what possessed, maybe better yet, better word, what supernaturally overcame John? What overwhelmed him was an intentional, powerful, even controlling manner, and it was not evil. It doesn't mean it was comfortable for him. It basically scared him to death. And we're going to cover that in a, in a bit. But in the very midst of his fear, he heard a voice, a voice that he hadn't heard for decades say to him, I am. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I am. John's old. He's limited in exile. He's already had more than his fair share of contributions to scripture and the church. And Jesus wasn't done with him. He had one more powerful job for John to do. And it would be the work of a lifetime. So like I said before, here we go. The critical message of the great reveal came to John on the island called Patmos. He was exiled there, but not alone, as we just encountered. And by extension, this message came to the seven churches amidst their great struggles in order to encourage and preserve faithfulness among the church. So what is it that's threatening these churches? Remember this. What are they facing? Danger and death at every corner in very real ways. Like we said last week, it's a critical key to understanding this book of Revelation to remember how it was written in and to heavy persecution. And so the one who has control over even danger and death comes to them with a word, with a message. Because he knows their circumstance. He knows what's threatening them even better than they do. Amen? Man, it's so easy for us to look back 2,000 years ago and say, yeah, even in, against the threats of the Roman Empire, God knows your danger even better than you do. And we nod and, and we say amen. But do we believe that? That God knows what I'm facing even better, even more thoroughly and completely than even I understand it? 
Blessed is the one who hears this and takes it in. What it says. There's going to be five things tonight. They're written in your bulletin if you have one. If you don't, maybe get out your phone. There's just going to be five things that I want us to kind of decode Not that it's actually written in code, but these five are things that that we need to understand in order to kind of finish off this first chapter of Revelation. They're written on your bulletin, but in case you don't have one, um, I'm going to go slow when I name them here. Here's the five things. In the Spirit, capitalize the S if you're writing it down, in the Spirit, you just write that. Secondly is on the Lord's day. On the Lord's day. Third one takes a little while. Write what you see in a book and send it. Write what you see in a book and send it. If that was a little long, the next one's going to be easy. Seven. (laughs) Just the number seven. And then son of man. Those are the five things. If we can understand what does each of those phrases, those ideas, those concepts mean, it'll it'll help us kind of unpack what's going on here at the end of Revelation chapter one. So let me read the first few verses of this week's passage first. Verse nine, where we left off last week. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was, whoa, in the dark. (laughs) I like that. Not my line. You set it up here. I was (laughs) in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So right there we get, we get a few of the five things that we need to kind of discern and unpack. The phrase, the concept in the spirit isn't just unique to that mention in this first chapter. John was in the spirit on three other pivotal times in Revelation. So if you're a note taker, uh, you may want to keep going with these references. He was also in the spirit in chapter four, verse two. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And then chapter 17, verse 3, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And then chapter 21, verses 9 through 10, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So these four occasions when John is in the spirit, they're like four signposts, four critical, pivotal parts of Revelation, turning points in the book. And in the spirit actually isn't just unique to John's use in Revelation. It's found in Ezekiel as well. Uh, These, if you're a note taker, you may not want to write down unless you're an overachiever and looking for extra reference. 
Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed is the glory of the Lord from its place. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them, and the sound of a great earthquake. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. Ezekiel eleven twenty four, and the spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. Then the vision I had seen went up from me. And then lastly, Ezekiel 37, verse one, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. Some of you are going, huh? After I make sense of Revelation, sounds like I need to go back to Ezekiel. Yeah, yeah. Exposure and an ability to navigate one helps us with others. Kind of builds on itself. So what is this being in the spirit? I might consider it to be kind of like a divine quality control. Where the Holy Spirit is supernaturally enabling John's experience based on the things he wants John to see and sense and hear and discern. John was in the hands under the complete control of the Spirit in order to experience and then retell things in the way the Holy Spirit wanted him to tell him. In the spirit, it's almost, like I said, a divine quality control. You're going to see and sense and feel and understand things exactly as I under intend you to. And it's not going to be all that comfortable for you. More on that in a bit. So that's in the spirit, like a divine quality control over John. Next is on the Lord's day. Most agree here on the Lord's Day, it's simply referring to Sunday, making this a little bit different than what we talked about last week, which is that critical Hebrew mega concept of the day of the Lord. So I know in, in English, the Lord's Day and the day of the Lord, they kind of just sound like the same thing. They're different concepts though. The Lord's Day simply is referring to that day of the week that centers around the whole entire week, kind of gets its orbit around the day in which Jesus was resurrected. And I love this. I love that the Spirit encountered John, not just any day of the week, but on Sunday, on the resurrection day, decades after Jesus was put on the cross, but then raised again on Sunday. He comes to his friend John, reminding him, my life, my story did not end decades ago on that cross. I am the living one. It's like God knows precisely what he's doing with perfect timing. John found himself in the spirit on the Lord's day. And Jesus tells him this, write what you see in a book and send it. That phrase right there gives the content that Jesus is telling John exactability and shareability. 
this makes it different than other prophecies that were given to prophets in, in other circumstances where they were given a prophecy and then actually told to like internalize it or in some cases eat it. I'm giving you this word. I'm revealing you part of what God's going to do, but it's not ready. It's not ripe to be shared yet. Eat it. It'll be shared at a later time. But that's what makes this prophecy, when Jesus gives John this prophecy, write what you see in a book and send it. I'm going to be in the spirit with you. I'm going to kind of supernaturally quality control what you're experiencing. And I want you to get this news out. Get it out to people. They need to hear this right now. Write what you see in a book and send it. Those are three of the five things that we need to discern. So the passage continues, and we get the other two things I want us to understand. Um, we're not always going to read, of course, Revelation like we are, the whole chapter verse by verse. Um, we don't have the time for that, but we will read the rest of chapter one here. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw... Seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with golden, a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Seven Seven, seven. Do you remember last week when we kind of talked a little bit about numerology, the idea that, that some numbers in Revelation have a deeper meaning than just being a number? Seven represents what? Perfection, completeness, wholeness. So when we see things like seven churches that this message is delivered to, we're supposed to kind of get this sense that this letter of Revelation was written to seven specific churches with specific issues in mind. And we're, we're going to get to that next week. I can't wait for that. But also seven in terms of this is also for the whole. It's for unique individuals but also for the whole. And on turning and seeing the voice that was speaking to him, instead of who would we expect that he sees? The correct answer is usually Jesus. <laughs> but John instead sees seven 
golden lampstands, kind of like Lumiere from Beauty and the Beast or something like that. We talked about it a little bit last week, but why all the symbolism? I actually was thinking this on my drive over, like, like I would have loved it if John could have said right here, I turned around and I saw my friend. Wouldn't you have loved that? Wouldn't that have been great? No, he sees seven golden lampstands and, and it's kind of diving right into this imagery. Why all the images? Because like we said last week, it's apocalyptic literature. It's art. Let me, let me ask this question. Why talk about your love for someone like it's overflowing like a waterfall? Or why do you, do you try to say to someone that their eyes sparkle like diamonds? Why don't you just say, I love you and I like your eyes? Because you're trying to access something deeper than just mere statements of fact. You're trying to, to add some emotion, some art to it. You're trying to access language and emotions that are deeper than just facts. That's why Revelation is full of images. So I want to suggest that whenever we read and encounter something like apocalyptic literature and it's full of emotions, we need to understand this is supposed to be accessing and activating emotions deeper than just facts. When it's image rich, it's supposed to be emotion rich. And if you're like me and, and you're just reading it and maybe not getting that, maybe a very authentic prayer is God Lead me deeper. And I bet you he'll answer that prayer. So the symbols right here with Revelation chapter 1 verse 12, we're diving into Revelation where symbols become more and more prevalent. It's like when Joseph had dreams. Do you remember this? Have you heard about this in the Old Testament? When he had dreams about the stars and the heads of grain bowing down to him. And later, he, he had another dream about some skinny cows and some fat cows. The symbols in the dreams represented things that were supposed to be interpreted. So you and I, when we read Revelation, we're supposed to be like Joseph here and have a sense of interpretation in seeing what lampstands and stars represent Golden lampstands, valuable and practical, just like lampstands that were present in the tabernacle. Exodus 25 presents them illuminating things in the very concentration of the presence of God. So others can see him. Revelation chapter 1 shows us these seven lampstands with one like a son of man... Jesus in their midst. More on him in, in just a second. He's kind of a big deal. But there's one more seven, seven stars in Jesus's right hand. Why right hand? Why not seven stars in Jesus's hand? Right hand is symbolic representative of control, of power. So pay attention at the end of chapter one that when Jesus lays his hand on John when John is scared to death. Does he just lay his hand on John? No, he lays his right hand on John. 
We'll get back to that. And Jesus translates this one about the lampstands in the stars for us. It's kind of like the Cliff Notes version. To start off Revelation, I'm going to make it easy for you guys. I'll give you this first one. The stars are representing angels or messengers to the churches. Now, while the stars could refer to literal angelic beings, these, I think, are more likely personifications of each church's identity. The Greek word angelos or angelos can either mean spiritual being angel or it can also mean messenger. And we certainly believe in angels. Throughout scripture, they have an active role in how God's story is playing out throughout history. But here in Revelation, the fact that we don't see these angelos or angelos functionally playing a role in this account other than functioning as the messenger to these churches, I stand with many commentators that hold that angels here is better translated or understood messengers to the messengers to these seven churches. And I'll probably keep saying this, smart people disagree with me on that. And they may very well be right. I want to keep trying to understand this, maybe seeing it slightly dimly or imperfectly and growing in this. But the main points in the developments still stand. So finally, we see the Son of Man. The main character of Revelation. The glorified Jesus. John met the glorified Christ. You know what? If we're not careful, you and I can start to see and envision Jesus just based on mere three decades of walking this earth. That's all we can picture when we see him sometimes. Don't get me wrong. Those three decades were the greatest three decades in the history of creation, But we need to remember that the Jesus that we serve and we worship and we sing to was in the beginning with God. All things that are made were made through him. And he stands rightly glorified at the throne. That glorified Jesus is the one who John encountered. I'm not even going to wait till week eight to make this point. Church, let's see Jesus anew. In Revelation, would you and I see Jesus in a new way? The fact that one day he would stoop down and wash his disciples' feet, this, the glorified Christ doing that, it blows our mind. If you can understand and see Jesus as the glorified Christ, then when you read and encounter him in the Gospels, it is more rich and more mind-blowing who he is and what he did for you. See Jesus anew. John just did. He has never seen Jesus like this. Look back to the part in tonight's passage, to the part where old man John passes out. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. (laughs) John is so overwhelmed and so overcome by what he encounters that he basically passes out. 
Skull and crossbones emoji. I died. <laughs> John is overcome in this moment. And that's good. He falls down at Jesus' feet and he worships, and that's appropriate. But I make this point because there's three times in Revelation where John basically passes out like this. This time right here, it's appropriate. He falls down before Jesus and he worships. But there's almost comically, although I'm not sure humor is really a part of it in Revelation, two other times where John falls down like this, basically passes out and starts worshiping and he's rightfully scolded. Let me kind of fast forward to that. Chapter 19, verses 9 through 10. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then look at this. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And then a few chapters later, chapter 22, verses 8 through 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard them and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But again, he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Three times John falls in worship and two of them bring about angelic correction. Still consistently imperfect John. I, I can kind of picture him as he's writing this, kind of smirking. Yeah, I remember those two times where I got a little carried away. <laughs> Had to be slapped on the wrist a little bit. Maybe there is a little bit of humor in Revelation, but... But in all seriousness, I actually think there's a really healthy caution here for followers of Jesus. Be careful what you worship. Even in the church world, even in spiritual spaces, be careful about what compels you to worship. Be careful in experiencing the good things, the powerful things of the kingdom that may overwhelm you with emotion and wonder. But I like those moments, Pastor John. I like it when a worship environment overwhelms me and my emotions to a sense of tears. That's good. That can be a good thing. Just like this angel that was giving John this revelation, it's a good thing, but be careful that you're not worshiping the moment or the emotions. You're not worshiping the style of music or the song or the, the feelings. You can pay attention to all that. It's good stuff, but worship is reserved for God alone. Worship God. The glorified Jesus is described as the son of man or being one like the Son of Man. That's a term derived from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, that should, for those of us that were here last week, we should remember, clouds of heaven, cloud rider, that's, that's the judgment of God coming in the day of the Lord. One like a Son of Man was coming. 
And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. You know what I love? This title, the Son of Man, was actually Jesus' preferred self-title. It's what he called himself most often. John 1, 51, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here's why I love that so much. For all of eternity, for this man, this glorified Christ, to so closely identify with his people, what grace. What grace that all throughout eternity, when Jesus had his preferred title, it was the son of man. God's place is with his people. What grace. To John, Jesus appears as one like the son of man. Human-like, but, but surpassing. When John sees his old friend that he hasn't seen in decades, there's something surpassingly magnificent, splendorous, awesome, and reverent about him here. And John just launches off in description. He says, clothed with a long robe, a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze, his voice like the roar of many waters, holding seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face like the sun shining in full strength. Please remember, when Revelation gets image rich, it's also supposed to be emotion rich. What's so emotional here? John seeing Jesus. In each of these descriptive images, you have important aspects about the glorified Christ. What he's like, righteousness, clothed in a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Justice, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, pure, clean, unblemished. Wrath, Eyes like the flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, not merely meek and mild in this glorious state. You and I not, may not like it that Jesus is perfect and holy and righteous even in his wrath, but it's a part of who he is against the forces that we encounter and that he conquered. And power, voice like the roar of many waters, holding in his right hand the seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. Anybody got that symbol? The word of God. Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you and I are going to try to see Jesus anew, 
We need to not just see him as a soft man petting lambs. We need to see him as a mighty warrior wielding a sword, a weapon searching hearts and bringing righteousness. But wait, the sword is usually a weapon wielded by hand, right? Yeah, Jesus doesn't fight like the world fights. Jesus conquers the world. Let me repeat that phrase. Jesus conquers the world through the testimony of his death and his resurrection. And he wields his power by the faithful witness of his people. You want to fight for the kingdom, tell your testimony. This is why what Timberline Church loves to do so much is facilitate baptisms. They're not merely taking a bath or a Duncan church. They're wielding the weapon that can destroy the works of the enemy by the testimony of the truth that is in us and through us by the word and testimonies of the word. It's all the weapon that Jesus effectively needs to conquer the world. John encounters the glorified Jesus, the one who was in the beginning and is alive even after facing death. And he stands here at the right hand of the Father, the glorified Christ. To think that, that you could stand in the presence of Jesus erect would be sheer hubris. And John doesn't. Just like Moses at the burning bush, he falls down. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And I love this part. I, I pictured this old, quivering man falling down in terror. Not that that part makes me so excited. <laughs> it's that as that old man is quivering scared to death. What does Jesus do? Jesus lays his right hand upon him. The hand representing control. And he's, but uh, chapter one, verse 17, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. Translation for John and for us, he lays his right hand on his friend and says, fear not, I am in control. Fear not, it's me, John. I am in control. Wonder who needs to hear that tonight. Fear not. It's me. I am in control. These are some of the greatest words from Revelation, especially on the backs of what we encountered through culture wars. I love, as we talked about last week, I love that this series comes after the culture war series because culture wars kind of shines light for all of us on the battles that we're in, the things that maybe can scare us. How do we navigate this world, God? And now we follow up with this picture. Fear not. Jesus says, it's me. I am in control.
Listen, the ultimate focus of Revelation is not rapture. It's not the tribulation. It's not the churches. And it's not even the new heaven and the new earth. It's him. It's Jesus. Fear not. It's me. I am in control. I'm in control, John, beyond time. As he says, I am the first and the last. That's a call back to last week's kind of mind-bending, time-bending perspective. I'm in control beyond nations, beyond persecution, beyond human rebellion and violence. Because he says, I'm the living one. What's the worst that violence can do to you? And now look at me, the living one. I'm in control. I'm in control beyond even death. He says, as I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Hades, or Sheol, as translated in other places in Scripture, that denotes the grave, or a word that you and I may not be all that familiar with, the netherworld. Kind of seems like something out of a Marvel movie. Regardless of the name, Hades, Sheol, the grave, the netherworld, it's a concept of a state of all people after death. All people go there. All people, the destiny of all people is death. And Jesus says here, as holder of the keys, I'm the gatekeeper. To let those who would have otherwise locked themselves in, Hades, Sheol, the grave, the destiny of all mankind can come through the gate, through the door, through me. Now read passages like John 10, seven through nine. Jesus says, truly I say to you, I'm the door to the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find good pasture. So old man John, I'm in control. And I'm supernaturally empowering you. Write what I give to you and give it to the seven churches, each of them specifically and to everybody, the whole, and send it from the son of man in control. He is the head of the church. Thank God. Guys, I love Pastor Derry. And I love my role as a pastor and other pastor friends throughout this community in this world. But I gotta say, thank God Jesus is the head of the church. He is your lead pastor. He is the one that will never fail you but lead you beside still waters and quiet pastors. He's pastors. He's your promise. He's unchanging He's faithful and living and brilliant. And he is the reason that hell will never be able to prevail against his church. Jesus is the head of the church. And that should make us burst forth with assuredness of victory. Revelation does not tell us it'll all be fine. No, Revelation meets the people in the midst of their trials and hardships and tribulation 
tells us amidst that all that we've seen and will see that God will be worshiped and his church will endure. It's a certainty. We're in for quite the unveiling as we continue in Revelation. So look at that. You're through a full chapter of Revelation. Give yourself a pat on the back there. Next week, we're going to look at what exactly this head of the church has to say when he speaks to his church. And I will tell you right now that next week is some of the most practical, most clear aspects of Revelation with a really, really cool ending. So as we end with a time of communion, I want us to remember that the one that gave his body to be broken for us, if you have the elements, go ahead and grab them. I want us to remember that the one that gave his body was not merely some 32, 33-year-old man, really good, really inspiring teacher. He was in the beginning. He was in the beginning, and he took on the flesh to pay the price that you and I deserve to pay. But because he was God, because he was not just man and he was God Almighty, his sacrifice, his broken body counts for us all. That's your lead pastor giving himself his body to be broken for you. And his blood, his precious blood shed for you and for all people. I want us to remember that as we see Jesus as a warrior, he's not bloodthirsty. The only blood that we're going to really see stained in Revelation was already shed 2,000 years ago. It's the only blood that needed to be shed is his for the saints, for you. Let's take that and remember. Jesus, you are unthreatened. You are righteous. You are steadfast. You are the living one. And you wield your sword to conquer, pierce our hearts through joints and marrow and lies and deception to the core of us. Help us activate that part of our faith and that part of our lives. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this study. We pray that as we have Bibles and we get to live in a place where we can open them and continue studying this, help us go deeper with you, Jesus. You are a good God, a good lead pastor, a good almighty king forever. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Great being here with you guys. Since we're a few minutes early, if the kids are still uh, doing their thing, go ahead and linger and mingle a bit, and we'll see you here next week.